Great job, everybody. Praise the Lord for that. Love those old Christmas songs, don't you? They're great. I've been uh, working through um, a biography on John Wesley in the last uh, month and a half, I guess, or so. And um, I'm very much enjoying reading from individuals who wrote at a time prior to electronic media, prior to social media, and they have a perspective that's far different than ours, should we say, from 2020, um, and the things that they were going through, the journeys they were walking through. And uh, John Wesley is really remarkable because by the time he comes to the end of his life, um, he said he had a sense that he was slacking off because he found an increasing tendency to wake up at five in the morning as opposed to 4.30 in the morning. Right, And there's a reason why God used those individuals to really advance the kingdom. His brother Charles had written um, 6,500 songs, by uh, hymns, by the time that he had died. And many of them are Christmas songs, songs that you've been singing. And so I very much resonate with the things that we were singing this morning. And the, the, the perspective from people who wrote those things so long ago is so fresh to me. Well, I'm going to encourage you to go to the book of Matthew this morning, and we're going to be in there for the Christmas story. While you're turning there, I just want to remind you of a couple things. Um, It will be in Matthew chapter 1, by the way. Um, Coming up next week, Sunday, a week from today, if you come here to services, you'll be by yourself completely because the building will be closed next week, Sunday, because of the Christmas Eve services. Over the years, um, and when Christmas Eve falls very close to the weekend, we've taken the opportunity to not have a service on the following Sunday. And This year, especially because of COVID, we decided there would be a great opportunity for facilities people to have a great chance to do sanitization before the service the following week. So... Yes, there'll still be in-person services the following weekend after New Year's, but not next Sunday. However, Christmas Eve, it'll be 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock, and 7 o'clock. Hopefully, you caught that during the announcements, and we'd love to see you here for that. And then you can decide if next Sunday you want to stream one of the previous Christmas services from the New Hope website. You certainly can do that. And then the second thing I wanted to pull your attention to, and I meant to mention it last weekend when I was teaching on Romans chapter 8, is that many people forget that we have a team of individuals here called the Stephen Ministers. And there's about 20 of them who are trained to work with individuals who are going through difficult times. And last week, as we were talking about God causing all things to work together for good, even in the sweet things and in the bitter things. Well, those individuals who are trained in Stephen ministry are really good at coming alongside individuals who are going through hard times, whether it's physically or emotionally or spiritually. And all you have to do is contact Pastor Gary here at the church or Phil or Carol Tobias, and they'd be happy to set you up with a a person who would come alongside you, especially at this time of year during the holiday season. A lot of people need somebody to talk to. And if you need a Stephen minister for nothing more than that, they would be happy to accommodate you. So jump on uh, the New Hope website and, and communicate. Let them know if you're watching from home right now. Don't hesitate to swing over to the website and, and let individuals know that you'd like a Stephen minister to contact you. Well, I told you we're going to be in Matthew, and we're going to be talking about some pretty basic theology this morning. If you're not familiar with the word theology, theology means the study of God, and theo meaning God, and theology meaning the study of the things of God. It can't get any more basic than the conversation that Charlie Brown and Linus had on a stage very similar to this one. When Charlie Brown was crying out to Linus while they were rehearsing for a school play, Can't anyone tell me the real meaning of Christmas? And many people are familiar with that. And you remember Linus's response. 
Linus's response came from Luke chapter one and chapter two. And he said, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you the real meaning of Christmas. Well, Linus could have just as easily responded with 1 Timothy 1.15. And 1 Timothy 1.15 states very clearly why Jesus came. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul, who wrote that to Timothy, would have quickly followed it up by saying, of whom I am the chief. Paul considered himself the chief of sinners. And he writes this letter to Timothy saying, that's why Jesus came, the opportunity for everyone to begin again, the ultimate reason for Christmas. So the real meaning of Christmas, to answer Charlie Brown's question, is that everyone is invited to begin again. How you respond this morning is up to you. How you respond to the invitation, the opportunities that God brings your way is your decision. With those things in mind, I'm going to ask you to pray with me as we get ready to dive into this story in Matthew, which is very familiar to you, and, and we'll ask God to make sure that we're focused on what he wants to say this morning. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every single soul that's in this auditorium. The honor and privilege that we have not only of reading your word, of worshiping you freely. I thank you for every single person who's able to join us from their homes as well and watching from maybe from work or from a car. God, every single soul that's represented in this service, you've given us a rare privilege and we don't want to take it for granted. We get to collectively learn more about you. And in that, Father, I pray that you would use this to strengthen us in our walk. No matter where we're at, whether we're just beginning or we've been walking with you a long time, and Father, I pray specifically for individuals who might not yet be in relationship with you, and that God, that you would use this time together to draw them in. I pray that you would open our eyes now by the power of the Holy Spirit who works through your word. We pray for this in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. You may feel like you know this story really, really well. And you probably do, but I'm not going to stop telling it simply because it's such a huge part of the gospel. John starts off by telling us why Jesus came, and he starts off in John chapter 1, verse 14, by saying the Word, meaning Jesus, the Word became flesh. And he's talking about an actual moment in history when God ripped open the midnight sky, and the angels appeared in blazing explosion of light. And they began announcing the good news that God had predestined, predetermined that he would rescue the human race. And John wrote powerfully about that, that God came to rescue the lost, that the one who exists outside of time would step through the fabric of time and become one of us. And we're talking about God the Son becoming Jesus the man, God the Son descending to earth to become Jesus. And I'm emphasizing this for a reason, that Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem. In the last couple of weeks, I've become familiar with a national survey that indicates that among born-again individuals, people who are believers in Jesus Christ, those who would consider themselves actually evangelical Christians, 30% say that they believe that Jesus actually started in Bethlehem, that Jesus didn't start out as God. That would be a theological mistake, and that's why I said we're going to cover some very basic theology here. Jesus has always existed. God the Son became Jesus the man, and you might be thinking, Mark, where do you get that from? I want to be able to support that. Well, let me take you to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 says that Christ Jesus, who although he existed, past tense, 
although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. In other words, God becoming man, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Jesus is not God. Take them to Philippians chapter 2. So we're talking about the condescension of God. God the Son condescends to become Jesus the man, and in doing that, He brings glory to God the Father and to God the Holy Spirit, and indeed to Christ Jesus, to God the Son. And in the midst of it, He brings a completely new future for every one of us, a new opportunity if we will believe. And this is absolutely essential to Charlie Brown's question, that you would absolutely understand this. God humbled himself even to look on the angels. It's a condescension of God. Let me back that up for you from Scripture. Scripture says this in Psalm 113.5, God humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven, meaning the angels, and on the earth. So that means all contact, all contact of God is of the greater with the lesser. So for God to have a relationship with you and I, is a condescension on a level that we can't begin to comprehend. That's what he did for us. So whatever else you may know about Jesus, seize this reality this morning as you're working through this story in a manner far beyond our comprehension. The creator takes the form of the created. And without that aspect, the events of Christmas are merely a fable. Now, to illustrate what I'm talking about in the way that God brings choices to us, what we have to decide to do with it, we need to understand the Christmas story a little bit better. I come at it from this perspective. At New Hope, we hold this truth to be something that we adhere to. What you believe about God determines what you do next. In other words, the path you choose, the way you decide to use your resources, the relationships that you have how you use your money, how you use your time. It's all a direct reflection of what you believe about God. And so throughout life, God brings opportunities your way. God brings invitations, either to begin a relationship with Him, or if you're in a relationship with Him, to grow in the relationship that you already have. How we respond is up to us. But to completely reject the opportunity or the disruption, or the interruption, and say, no, nah, I don't want anything to do with that, is to have the opportunity, the apex of life in front of you, and disregard it. Now, to illustrate that, you'll find that truth within the Christmas story, and I'm going to bring it out from two individuals this morning and on Christmas Eve. This morning, specifically in the life of Herod, but also with Joseph on Christmas Eve. Both of them have the same opportunity to respond to a God opportunity that's been brought in front of them. So when you open up the book of Matthew, you open it up to a time when Caesar Augustus was on the throne of Rome, ruling over the Roman Empire. And Rome is in the midst of redistricting. They're spreading people around, moving people hither and yon, trying to get a census on individuals so that they know how to increase the taxes. And so the imperial command that comes from Caesar actually requires, it demands that Joseph would go to the home of his ancestors 
called the city of David. And it would be a mistake to think of it as a city like we have today. It would be more like a village. It, it, actually, not that big at all. And that Mary travels with Joseph to this village indicates that they're contractually married. Otherwise, she wouldn't have been with him. Now, they haven't consummated the marriage yet. They, they've been pledged to be married, but they haven't actually physically consummated. They're married by contractual requirements, though, and that's why Mary's traveling with him. So Scripture starts out this way in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, pause right there for just a minute. Joseph doesn't know that she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Imagine if you find out and you're engaged that your fiancé is expecting a child and you know you're not the father. Where does your mind go? Well, exactly where Joseph's would go. He doesn't know that she's expecting by the Holy Spirit, not yet. And so from a human perspective, you're looking at the total collapse of a young man's dreams. Nothing is going his way. And to say he's confused would be a huge understatement. However, God's brought an invitation to him, an opportunity in the midst of the disruption. Throughout life, God brings opportunities your way, either to begin a relationship with him or to grow in the relationship that you already have. Now, from a human perspective, he thinks things are off course. But from a spiritual perspective, what God has just done is God has allowed a major disruption to come into the life of an individual in order for him to conform his life to God. So the circumstances have completely changed here on earth. And his perspective is, this is not what I planned. What am I supposed to do now? Can, can you identify with that? Has God brought interruptions your way this past year? Well, if you're drawing breath and living in 2020, you'd absolutely say, yeah. We live with it every single day. God's brought a huge interruption my way. And I would call it disruption. Well, the challenge we have for ourselves is to ask ourselves, has God brought me an opportunity that I'm merely seeing as a disruption, but God's bringing this interruption for a reason, and how we respond is up to us. We're going to leave Joseph on the shelf for just a minute as we look at Herod and how he responded to this God opportunity. Because King Herod has been given a similar God opportunity, a similar God invitation, and he would definitely consider it a disruption. Matthew 2 verse 1 says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. I'm going to ask you to just think back over the parables and what you've learned since we've been studying the parables about kings in Israel in the New Testament time. We learned that kings were put in power at the whim of Rome. Rome could install them, Rome could remove them. Well, Caesar Augustus put in place Herod. Herod is no exception, he's in the line of the Herods, but this particular Herod is called Herod the Great. In the time of Herod the Great is when Jesus is born, Herod the King. Now, Bethlehem at this point is only 10 miles away from Jerusalem. It literally, like from here to Williamston, now, if you knew that Jesus was in Williamston this morning, you wouldn't be here, right? I wouldn't be here either. This place would be empty. We'd all go 10 miles away to see Jesus. Well, in this moment, this disruption that's just come into Herod the Great's life, the king, 
is the last thing that he needs. Let's dive into the story. Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Can I just point out that passage that you just read in those three verses is just packed with theological information. It's packed with all kinds of detail. I'm going to do my best to hold myself back and, and not rabbit trail too much. It doesn't say, first of all, that Herod, as a, media, as, a, as a means of hearing this information, that he went downstairs and jumped in his chariot and told his chariot driver to floor it. I've got to get to, to Bethlehem. It doesn't say that at all. It actually says Herod freaked out. Herod's very upset, and the city responds likewise. And indeed, Jerusalem is a city. It was a big city. And they're freaking out because they know his reputation. So check this. The very same thing that caused the wise men to want to worship, they've come to celebrate, is the very same thing that's caused Herod to be troubled, to be agitated, as the Scriptures indicate, So I want you to notice something. God is up to something extraordinary here. He's brought an interruption into the lives of these people. And Herod has a choice how he's going to respond. And what one person might see as an invitation, as an opportunity to respond to the activity of God, another person sees as an interruption or a disruption. You notice that his reaction to God's activity affects everyone else around him? Because it's always about more than just what God is doing in your life. It's about all those who are watching you. How are you responding to what's going on? This period of time is the exact same thing. Now, for Herod's part, he's a piece of work. This guy came into power in 40 BC. He was installed, as I said, by Caesar. And to impress Caesar, because Caesar put him on the throne, in order to impress Augustus Caesar, what... Herod did as a reaction to that is he had a golden eagle made. A golden eagle was the symbol of Rome. Actually, for Rome, they looked upon the eagle as being a representation of the god Zeus, small g. So Herod has this eagle made, this golden eagle, and it's very large, and he actually has it mounted over the top of the temple complex, God's temple. Well, as you can imagine, the Israelites freak out when he does that. They're like, what in the world are you doing? It's an idol you've put up there. Why would you put the god Zeus over the god's temple? Well, he did it to impress Caesar. But the people reacted strongly, and they, they, they got axes out, and they began chopping away at it, trying to knock it down. Well, in response, what Herod did is he had many people executed. Eventually, they took the eagle down, but that's part of who this guy is. At this point in the story, he's in his 70s. He's near the end of his life, and he's extremely paranoid about his power. To the degree that five days before he died, he actually had his own son executed. His name was Antipater, because he thought Antipater was scheming to seize the throne from him. That's why Augustus Caesar said this about Herod. You see the quote on the screen, it's better to be one of Herod's dogs than to be one of his children. Yeah, true. So scriptures say that Herod is troubled, and he's troubled just because the wise men show up in town. 
But I don't know what the framework of your thinking is when you think of the wise men. This is an entourage from Persia. They've come from the area of Babylon, one of the world's mightiest empires. And when they show up, it's not just with three camels. They ride Persian steeds. They're mounted on horses. They arrive with a cavalry. They're there to show a representation of the empire of Babylon. They come rolling up into Jerusalem, and they indicate that a new king has been born. Uh, a, a little background for you on the Magi. In this era, the, the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem would take weeks, six weeks, actually. It's 800 miles. And so these individuals would have been on foot or on horseback day after day after day. You go to sleep at night, you get up the next morning, and it's not like you can take a break. You keep traveling every single day. So they've journeyed for six weeks, and they have a six-week journey to go back again, meaning that should tell us that these people are taking whatever's happening very seriously. They've interrupted their life to respond to what they understand is going on. Obviously, the venture that they've made has huge significance. Otherwise, they'd never take the risk of traveling so far, and they certainly wouldn't leave their comfortable life back in Babylon. And they show up and they say, we saw his star from the east, meaning they were in the east and looking to the west, and they saw his star. We saw his star in the east. That's where they lived. And as a result, they're traveling, and they're, despite their very limited knowledge of who Jesus is, they're really eager to worship Jesus. So they ask this question in Matthew 2, 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And if you have your own Bible open this morning, you might want to circle the word born. It's an important key to what they're asking about. Born king of the Jews. In other words, they're not indicating that he would become king of the Jews. They're saying this one has been born. He's of ancestral lineage that entitles him to be king. He won't become king. He is king. He's born king. That's a really important distinction that the Magi are asking in the midst of their question. They're talking about his kingly status. And that's part of why Herod is troubled. In our world, when a representation comes from another country, a, a detachment, an entourage that would represent another nation would show up. Our nation receives them warmly, welcomes them, have state dinner for them at the White House. In this particular setting, I, I think on the surface, Herod probably responded like, welcome, why are you here? He's thinking under his breath. This is a, a freakish thing for him. I need to explain that for you, why he's so troubled. The one Greek word in your notes this morning is terasso. And if you have an old-fashioned washing machine at home, you might still have an agitator in the center, or maybe some of the newer ones are still being made that way today. A center agitator, that's where that comes from. The thing that roils the water inside your washing machine, that is where Herod's at. His insides are being roiled up. He's agitated. Now, here's what's going on. Politically, militarily, Rome is scared of the power of the East. They're scared of Persia. They've been at war with them twice in King Herod's lifetime. He's seen major conflicts between these two great world empires. 
So Herod, think of it, is in the middle of two huge contending empires. He has the power of the West on one side and the power of the East on the other side, and Israel is trapped in the middle. Who would have thought of such a thing? Israel finds itself in the midst of being the focus of the world, right at the very, very center. And when you think of the Persian Empire, you're talking about the control of the Orient, you're talking about control over modern-day India, Iraq, Pakistan, Iran, huge, huge empire. So Herod peeks out his palace window, and arriving from the east, he sees this cloud of dust, and he hears the thunder of heavy cavalry. And when they come, they roll up into Jerusalem, mounted on Persian horses, and they're asking this question about a newborn king. Now, mind you, Magi had one responsibility in the Persian Empire, and their responsibility at this period of time was to be a kingmaker. So you have kingmakers showing up in Jerusalem, asking where the newborn king is, in the midst of political turmoil when the power of the West and the power of the East is coming against each other, and Herod finds himself trapped. So the first thing on Herod's mind, number one, is hunt down this threat to his throne. So he calls a high-level meeting. Verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And while Herod doesn't appear to know much about God's word, not very well at all, he actually knows enough to grasp this as a God activity. Something's going on here that must be of God, and I'll help you understand that in just a moment. Why does a king with no particular religious interest bring religious advisors in to talk to him? He has the power of Rome at his disposal. He has the knowledge of Rome available to him, but he's not looking for a political answer. He's looking for a religious answer. So why does a king with no religious interest bring religious leaders in to talk to him? Because he knows that what he needs can't be gained through political mechanisms. He doesn't need a political cabinet to come together. He knows that he's dealing with something that originated from God, not from man. So here's their response. Verse 5, they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are no by, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler. Now, what they just quoted is very incomplete. They've quoted the Old Testament. They've quoted the prophet Micah, but they've left it short. I'll explain that for you. And here's what he's hearing. The leaders answer him, Hear, O great King Herod, what has been written stands. It is uncontested. Now remember, Herod is a dedicated follower of Caesar. He does whatever Rome tells him to do. Yet he's taking this prophecy very, very seriously because he knows what many people have forgotten. He knows that when God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Say amen if you agree with that. When God says it's going to happen, political leaders better take notice. Military leaders better take notice. It's going to happen. And now Herod finds it happening in his lifetime. And I want you to see the 
full context of the quote. I told you the Magi got the response and Herod got the response from the leaders of Israel that was just partial. Look at the full quote from the book of Micah going back to the Old Testament. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. This is the part they left out. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That was written 800 years before the birth of Jesus. Why are they leaving this last part out? Uh, clearly, these advisors know they're dealing with a madman. And so they're giving partial information because they really value their heads. They don't want to say that last part because that phrase, to go forth, it, it means to conduct one's activities. It was always used of a king or a political leader. His goings forth, his activities as a king are from long ago, from the days of eternity, it's a match for Philippians chapter 2, that God the Son condescended to become Jesus the man. From the days of eternity past, this one shows up now in the first century, and they leave out that part. So hear the report the way that Herod is hearing it from them. Yes, O king, a child born of the right ancestral credentials, born in the right location. That one, that one gets the throne. So Herod has a God dilemma. He has a God issue in front of him. He has to ask himself, what do I believe about God? Because what you believe about God determines what you do. One of my favorite authors, theologians, who's not passed away yet is Henry Blackaby. Henry Blackaby said it this way when it comes to an issue of a crisis of belief. Look with me on the screen. God's invitation for you to join Him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. As a result, you must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what He is doing. Herod has hit this crisis of belief. What do I believe about God? The interruption has come. Something completely outside of Herod's control. You got something like that going on in your life today? Something completely outside of your control? Of course you do. Absolutely. We all do. This particular issue he can point to as a God activity. That's why he's consulting them for God information. So we're left in these situations to ask ourselves the question, can I grow through this? Or do I need to manipulate it to work it out for my gain? If you were King Herod's advisor this morning, what would you advise him to do? How would you encourage him to respond? Here's why I wanted to use Herod this morning as the counterpoint to Joseph. Herod knows enough to consult the Scriptures. He knows enough to go to the Bible, and the advisors point him to the truth. But the question is, once he sees the truth, will he allow it to impact his life? This is, this is telling me, because of the midst of this story, it's telling me that knowledge of the Scriptures isn't enough to lead you to relationship with Jesus. It's information, and God uses the information. But it requires the work of the Holy Spirit and requires the person responding to it. See, this is a person who wants just enough God 
to meet his purposes, just to serve his own need. Not too much God talk. Don't give me too much. I want just enough God to serve my purpose. And in that, I consider this action even more vile because I'm convinced as I read this, Herod knows this is the Messiah. I'm not sure that he knows that he's trying to kill God, but he knows this is the Messiah. He knows this is the promised one, or he would have never asked the question, where is the Messiah to be born in verse 4? So verse 7, keep going forward. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Let's hear this with the sincerity that drips from his statement. Go and search for the child. And, and when you find him, tell me so that I too may worship him. Do you believe him? Should you? He's a poser. He's got the God talk down. He knows enough about the Bible. He knows enough about the God talk, and he says, I, I, I want to worship him too. Should you believe a poser? So you have a poser in the midst of the Christmas story. Why is he calling together secretly the Magi? Well, it's very easy to understand that because his advisors know him really well. They know he's absolutely brutal. How amazing would it be, church? If you opened up your Bible and you read Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2 and you heard about the Magi coming and, and the next thing you read was, and as a result, Herod gathered together the Magi and they began to pray about how they might worship God. Or how amazing would it be if you read that Herod led an entourage up to Bethlehem to see the baby Jesus. You know, that's not going to go on. Not with this individual. That's not his story. Instead, what you find, and we're not going to get into it this morning, moving through verses 9 through 15, you find a plot is unfolding. And in the midst of the plot, he's plotting a massacre. He's already scheming to kill all the boys of the region. He just wants to know the age. Just enough God to suit his purposes. And he's so convinced that he fooled them that he doesn't even send a bodyguard along with them. He doesn't send soldiers to go with them up to Bethlehem. He's convinced that they bought into what he said. Posers are really good at doing that. So he's convinced that he fooled them, but he doesn't expect verse 12. And in verse 12, we learn that God shows up in the middle of the night and warns the Magi and warns Joseph and Mary about the plot to kill them. And they escape with their life. Well, look at that. On Christmas Eve, they escape to Egypt. The wise men exit out the back door, Joseph and Mary, and make a last-minute ditch. But let's continue the Herod's story. Herod, verse 16, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So by the next evening, Herod's patience is exhausted, and he completely loses control. He's in a rage. The word tricked gives us an indication of where his mind is at. Matthew records that he thinks he's tricked. The word tricks means in, in the ancient language to, to be made sport of 
or to be mocked. Matthew's not saying that's what they did to him. That's the way Herod interpreted it. When Herod saw that he had been mocked, that wasn't their true intention. So he rages, he's a furious maniac, and he commits one of the bloodiest acts of his life. Remember, Bethlehem is only 10 miles away, close enough to hear the hoofbeats of the horses and the soldiers as they ransack houses and they move from house to house and they're screaming mothers clutching their babies, two-year-old and under males because of what he learned from the Magi. He's clearly taking no chances whatsoever. Just kill them all. Herod has not only rejected the activity of God, Herod sets himself against God. Now, one of the many things that we learn about the God of the Bible from reading the Bible is this, God is never surprised. Matthew points that out to us. By the next part of the Christmas story, we see this in verse 17. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Rachel, one of the patriarchs of Israel, Bethlehem was her hometown. It wasn't just King David's city. Rachel lived before David, and Rachel was written about hundreds of years before. The children of Rachel, the offspring, the descendants reaping for their children because they're no more. It's a fulfillment of a prophecy that was written 400 years earlier, meaning this, God already knew the choices that Herod was going to make, so much so that he moved the prophet to write that 400 years in advance. And so Jeremiah sits down and writes it down because this one who was born, Herod, would become a pawn of Satan. So much so that when he died, it was a very miserable death, but we'll come to that in just a second. Look with me at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to jo to, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. It took amazing courage for Joseph to leave Egypt. We'll get into that in a few days on Christmas Eve. But for Herod, I'm just going to give you a warning in advance, parents. Um, this, this description that's coming you're going to see on the screen is it's PG-13, okay? You might even want to plug your ears or maybe close your eyes. I want you to see this quote from Josephus. He's an ancient theologian and, and uh, antiquities writer, we'll, we'll call him that. And Josephus wrote this about King Herod's death. Herod died of this, ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to recovery. He wrote that in the first century. What a horrible death. The Herods of this world make us end up feeling pretty good about ourselves, right? They're like, I may not have all my act together, but my issues are not like his. Well, it's true, Herod would not and did not believe the songs that you sang today. It was not on his agenda. What he believed is that God operated outside of his best interests. He would never believe Romans 8, 28, 
That God causes all things to work together for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's not Herod's world. He thinks God's operating outside of his best interest, and these interruptions that have come are not welcome. So as a result, he believes that God's plans should not be his plans, and it shaped his actions. Because what you believe about God determines what you do. And because he believed that, he destroyed the relationships around him, his own family, his own advisors, his own kingdom. And he lived his life consumed with anger and jealousy. But more important than all that, that, that's history. More important than all of that, Herod the man, the man with an eternal soul just like you have this morning, he missed the God opportunity. The God opportunity right in front of him. That God made it evident that this disruption, this interruption that has come, has come from God because God's sovereign and all interruptions come from God. There's no chance. There's no luck. God brings an interruption, but Herod misses the God opportunity right in front of him. Catch this. Even though he lived in the midst of the Christmas story, he didn't know what the Christmas story was all about, Charlie Brown. He lives with the real Christmas story, and he totally misses the reason that Jesus came, Christ Jesus came into the world, 1 Timothy 1.15, to save sinners. Paul actually starts out by writing it this way when he writes to Timothy. He says, it is a trustworthy sin. sinners. You can take it to the bank. He came to make you and me an object of his mercy. So as I study the Bible, I hope you've come to the same conclusion that even Herod, even Herod, if he had confessed and repented of his sin, God would have forgiven him. He would have done that because he did the same thing with individuals in our lifetime. He did that with the thief on the cross. Even Herod could come to Jesus. See, the real Christmas story is that everyone is invited to begin again. How we respond is up to us. You personally can receive forgiveness of your sins today if you've never done that before, if you've never taken advantage of what God's offering you. If you're expecting God to do something more, I'm here to tell you, he's already done it all. He's just asking you to believe. So I know it's a very familiar story, but it reminds us once again that God is always active around us. God is always at work, church. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, he invites you to join him in his work, to be part of what he's doing. If you're not yet a believer and you feel the Holy Spirit drawing on you, you feel that anxiousness right now, like, I got to do something with this. That's the Holy Spirit of God tugging on you. All you have to do is respond saying, I believe, I, I want forgiveness of my sin. I believe in Jesus. You can celebrate Christian as a, a Christmas as a follower of Christ this Christmas. How magnificent would that be? So I'm asking you, what do you need to surrender this morning? You're a believer in Jesus, you might need to surrender something that you've been clutching onto. If you're not a believer yet, perhaps you need to be at that place if you feel the Holy Spirit pulling on you, that you surrender your life to him.
I'm going to end at that point. I'm going to ask you right now, would you take what you've learned this morning in this last 40 minutes together and carry it with you forward into this week? You know people who want to know the real meaning of Christmas. When you engage with them in conversation, be bold. Be bold. Just like Linus. Sure, I can tell you the true meaning of Christmas. Let's pray, church. Father, I I do thank you for this time that we've had to examine your word once again. I sense the movement of your Holy Spirit in this place. God, I ask that you would use what is present here right now in this moment in the lives of all these individuals who are believers, both virtually and in person, God, that you would use us for your kingdom's sake to advance the name of Jesus this week. We live in the midst of a world that's wondering, what's next? Use us, Father. Use us to be a witness. You hold all these things together. You have a plan. Things are not spinning out of control. You're working your plan. And in the midst of it, you draw us into relationship with you. So God, I ask that you would send those who belong to you out with a mandate, with a boldness to speak boldly of the things of Jesus and what you've done for us. Father, at the same time, I pray for those who might not yet be in relationship with you that you would continue to draw, that continue to work in in the midst of this service and hours from now, God. Continue through the power of your Holy Spirit to draw. We turn all these things over to you and we place it in your hands and ask for your blessing upon it and a blessing upon us for having spent time with you this morning. God, I pray for that in Jesus' magnificent name and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.